HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Our master cheesemaker program is one of the only two in the world. So it's no wonder every master in America has called Wisconsin home. Find your next favorite cheese and meet our makers at wisconsincheese.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we will be speaking um, from the trenches of Minnesota. Um, My guest today is Sonia Trom Ayers. She is an attorney practicing family law in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and she is also the business manager for the Trom Family Farm in Dodge County, Minnesota. She has been documenting the growth of factory farms along with the harassment and intimidation tactics deployed by the industry as it expands since the 1990s. So we going back a ways. Like this is actually like almost the beginning of when pork farming really uh, started to move into the industrial space. I know that was like kind of the case in the 80s, but really the 90s is when it wrapped up, when it ramped up, right, Sonia? That's correct. So now let's start, first of all, by explaining how the industry operates. I want you to give like a brief overview of the structure of how, um, you know, the whole gestational operation uh, feeding with multiple, you know, the gestational operation, excuse me, I'm a little jacked up on caffeine today. Um, but there's a gestational operation, which then feeds kind of spokes in a hub, as you as you described it, uh, with multiple confinement facilities in any given area. And so I want listeners to understand what is the hierarchy of the contract grower versus the integrator, and then finally the processor. In other words, who's making the money? <laughs> Thanks, Katie. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, I think it's uh, important to underst- for your listeners to understand that the current industrial system of pork production didn't happen overnight. And my family, fortunately, or perhaps unfortunately, has had a front row seat and has watched the progression uh, over the past 25, 30 years. Uh, The industry was very deliberate. They were very intentional in establishing the current industrial system, which actually took years to construct. Um, The industry pulled what I call a power play, and adopted a three-step plan to assume power and control of the hog industry. Can I? Would you like me to explain the, that three-step process? Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. 
I think, so, I think people need to understand what that is. So, well, essentially step one was the industry established anchors and they anchored a few swine factory farms using their network of Farm Bureau farmers, including the first swine factory farm, which is just a mile north of our farm. That anchor was established in 1993. I mean, we okay. all think of anchors, for example, in like a, a shopping mall. So you know how a developer anchors the mall with a big department store? Sure. Well, it's the same theory, right? You you anchor the, the, the hog production with a few swine factory farms with hopes that it encourages other development. So in other words, they would build a processing plant because obviously... That, that would be the anchor, right? The processing plant is the anchor. So a Smithfield, a Hormel, a Tyson, it's going to come in. They're going to build a, a, a processing plant, and then they're going to need farmers to feed that processing plant, right? Well, what I'm referring to is like they anchored like a few big swine factory farms. So the one that's just a mile north of our farm is 4,000 hogs. Well, that's not so big. Yeah, they're they're bigger, right? Then the the second step that they employed was that, and this was the critical step, the industry pushed out all the independents. And to help you understand, um, my brother-in-law, Dave, he and his dad farmed together near our hometown of Blooming Prairie. They were independent farmers, which meant that they owned their own hogs. Right. And they typically delivered those hogs to Hormel. And they noticed that wait times, this is in the 1990s, after the industry had anchored a few of these swine factory farms, they noticed that the wait times were taking longer and longer at the point of delivery because Hormel and the other industry giants were taking in big semi-loads that were coming from area, these big anchor um factory farms, they were given first priority. And so those are also known, let me just stop you here. Those are known as concentrated animal feeding operations, CAFOs, right? That's what you're that's, talking about. That's correct, yes. Just want to make sure yep. everybody is on the same page with the terminology, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. So here are the independents waiting for 45 minutes to an hour to deliver their hogs mm-hmm. um, while the independents had to sit and wait. Right. And and the hogs are also drop, you know, dropping weight. Then the third step was the essentially the get big or get out phase. We all, we've all heard that phrase. Sure. And 1998 was essentially the breaking point. And I think this is an interesting part of the story that in, area farmers were had to make the painful decision at that point to get big or get out. And several area farmers were invited to a dinner meeting at a restaurant just outside of Austin and that meeting, believe it or not, was hosted by Farm Credit Services and some of the industry giants. And they announced that they had a new system and promised big money to these attendees. But the hitch was that they would no longer own their own hogs. Those hogs would be owned upstream by an integrator. And mm-hmm. of course, the other part of that hitch was that they had to construct a big factory farm. So essentially, the industry set up a a pyramid scheme and imagine, you know, a pyramid. And at the top, you have the big meat processors, processors such as Hormel, JBS, Smithfield, Tyson. The integrators are in the middle. The integrators own the hogs and they provide feed and veterinary services to the contract growers. And then at the bottom of of that pyramid, you have the contract growers. 
Now, how were they able to decide that they were going to pay? Like, how did they persuade people? Why were people so vulnerable to this pyramid scheme? That's the thing that that strikes me. It's like, why is it that, uh, you know, you're happily uh, growing your own hogs, owning your own hogs, managing your own hogs, and then these guys come in and they say, we're going to take that part of it away from you. You're going to still house the hogs, and then you're going to deliver them to us for processing. Where was the pro? Where where did it look to these farmers like they were going to make more money than they were already making? They were promised, and this is back in 1998. Yeah. They were promised that they would make sixty thousand dollars a year. Well, that was pretty big money back in 1998. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so part of it was the financial incentive, and. But the other but part were of they, this is, But Sonia, what were they making already? Like if they were owning their own hogs, how much money were they making? What was their profit on that? Was it like 40000 as opposed to sixty? And I'm just trying to understand why you would want to give up that kind of control. There had to be a fairly persuasive argument there in terms of efficiency or better money or I don't know what, you know, less risk. I don't know. Well, I think that I think I'm going to use Art Cullen's term. Art says they had they had them by the short hairs, <laughs> you know. I mean, He's the problem, yeah. yeah. And the problem was, like these farmers were put in an impossible situation um, because, like, the financing was all lined up for them. They made it easy, you know. It looked like right. it was easy. We've got all the financing lined up for you, and basically all you have to do is sign on the bottom line. And by the way. You know, if you're a farmer and you're a second, third, fourth generation farmer, you want to stay on the family farm. This is your legacy. Your family is tied to that land. And this was, uh, you know, a way for you to stay on the land. And and I think that these farmers, (laughs) they didn't see any other option. So in other words, the problem was, is like, say you're like your brother-in-law would take his hogs to the processor, Hormel in this case. And instead of being, you know, waved through the gates and unloading his hogs and stuff like that, he'd sit outside for 45 minutes or an hour, which doesn't sound like to the layman, doesn't sound like a lot of time. But I think people have to visualize that this is an animal that is packed to the rafters with living hogs, uh, all of whom are stressed out and losing weight every single minute that they stay in that truck. Is that correct? That's correct. And if if your animals are losing weight, that means you're You're also losing losing revenue. (laughs) That's right. And, and right. the same thing, by the way, is happening right now in the beef industry. Oh, this sure. is exactly what they're trying to do to the, the beef operators is to, you know, deny them access to the marketplace. Oh, sure. I mean, well, it's across the board. I mean, the, the beef industry works a little bit differently because they haven't really completely moved into that sort of contract growing thing. Uh, but the processors absolutely hold the spigot in terms of money. And they, you know, price discovery is a problem. They never dealt, you know, people just like in the chicken industry and probably the hog, you don't know how much money you're going to get per pound for your animals. And if they don't like you or you, you know, make them mad for some reason or you make demands, then they're going to say, I'm sorry, we can't process your cattle right now. You're going to have to take that cattle back or you're going to have to wait, watch your cattle lose weight. You're going to have to wait until we feel like processing them. And, you know, there's only so many days that you can wait for your cattle to be processed because you're losing money on feed, you're losing money on pounds, on how, how much cattle weigh. So, you know, there's all, there's all kinds of ways they can stick it to you. But let, let me just get you, get it sort of set the stage here for people. How many factory farms are in your area now? Like when you were growing up in that area, 
and your brother-in-law in the 19, late 1980s was was growing his hogs. What what did the what did the landscape look like around there as opposed to what it looks like now? So the farmers, I mean, when I was a child and and during the past, um, you know, 40, 50, 60 years, you know, most of the farmers were independent farmers, which meant that they sure. owned their own livestock. Yeah, a lot of, of the livestock was pasture raised. Right. And so I have to tell you, that is one of the things that I dearly miss about driving through southern Minnesota is just I, I actually stop now when I see animals grazing because it is such a rare occurrence. And so yeah, it's sure. one of the things that just captures my heart uh, yeah, to see those animals grazing. But um, our farm is located in Dodge County, Minnesota, which you mentioned. It's um, directly west of Rochester, which is home to the famous Mayo Clinic. Mm -hmm. We are now in the heart of of hog country because we're in the heart of corn country. And so um, just to give you another idea about like where geographically our farm is situated, we're not that far from Interstate 90, which runs through the southern part of the state near the Iowa border. And as you know, Iowa is number one in hog production in the United States. Minnesota is now number two. We have actually surpassed North Carolina. Amazing. And And then along that Interstate 90, there are three huge meat processing plants. So Hormel Foods in Austin Mm -hmm. and then JBS in Worthington, Minnesota, and just across the border in Sioux Falls, uh, Smithfield, which is owned by the Chinese. Yep. Um, And in our immediate area, right around our farm, we have 12 swine factory farms in a three-mile radius. And that's farms that are housing 4,000 or better hogs per, which generates, in case people aren't aware, I forget exactly what the number of pounds of manure and, you know, waste uh, animal waste that represents, but you know, it's, 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 it's tantamount to having about three times the number of humans, right? So, I mean, uh, like uh, 10,000 hogs in one place is going to generate the same amount of hum- of waste as say 30,000 people basically is the equation as I understand it. I could be slightly off on that, but not by much. And let's remind people that none of this is processed in any way. This waste is living in what they call manure lagoons, uh, and they are offering up their delicious uh, scents as well as their poisonous gases uh, to all who live anywhere nearby. So it really has obviously had a huge impact on the quality of life in your area. You mentioned that actually in some of the conversations we had before this. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about how they have recruited people because you, I thought that was a really uh, profound, you know, terrifying sort of um, anecdote that you said about how the Farm Bureau is like sending people out to grain elevators where people are buying feed for their livestock and, and, you know, uh, persuading them that this is a great idea uh, to go into the uh, K- uh, CAFO style of farming. So talk a little bit about that, will you? So, well, once the industry established a foothold uh, mm-hmm. with these large factory farms, then the industry actually planted recruiters inside oh, these local feed mills and or local co-ops because, of course, they want the feed business. Yeah, And so the recruiter would watch for a young farmer delivering a load of corn, for example, to the feed mill. And those uh, young farmers, they referred to them as recruits or prospects. 
<laughs> and they announced to these young farmers, and I've heard this dozens of times, this is how you get started in farming. That was their magic line that they fed to these young farmers. But we know that's not true. This is how you get started in corporate farming. And so right. the, the recruiter would uh, run cash flow projections, showing the farmer how to pay for the building and help line up financing. And <clears throat> seemingly it looks like, you know, this whole system looks like it's low risk. There's no cash down. A few years ago, it cost approximately $750,000 to construct a swine factory farm, a CAFO. The first 20% of that loan was actually guaranteed by the local feed mill or the local co-op using mm -hmm. the member's equity position. So my dad <laughs> had no idea, for example, that his equity position was being used to guarantee these loans. And then the remaining 80% was financed through a company such as AgQuest or, you know, with ties to farm credit services. The other thing to know about um, that this was an enticement to these young farmers. When they signed the contract, they received a signing bonus of $30,000, which, which magically was just the right amount of money to buy a brand new pickup. Uh -huh. So, wow. and then, and I have copies of different contracts and the contract payment, the contract terms are generally tied to the length of the underlying note. So the payment terms in order to pay off that building which is usually a 10-year term or an 11-year term. So it's the contract is tied to that. It doesn't have anything. It has very little to do with the farmer. And so right. these poor farmers are told, well, don't expect much money up front, but, but after that you'll get big money. And they never seem to see what's off in the distance, which is huge improvements that are required to these facilities and so forth. Right, right. It's the same in poultry farming, by the way, exactly the same. Yes. Uh, they are constantly, uh, you know, the guy comes through, whoever the integrator is, uh, and says, oh, you know, don't like your ventilation system. Oh, your climate control is off. Oh, you know, you got to put in some more roosts or something like that. And there is some, you know, as you know very well, there has been some legislation to improve the quality of poultry farms uh, or factory farms um, so that the animals are slightly less miserable and stressed out. And that involves uh, creating a better infrastructure within the structure itself. And uh, that, of course, is very costly. But let's 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 talk a little bit about the uh, what you described as the whack-a-mole aspect of these stealth developments of the CAFO. In other words, you know, suddenly uh, neighbors would find that uh, Tyson or Hormel or one of these, uh, whatever, some farmers decided that he's going to throw in his lot with the corporate um, farming model and he's going to build a CAFO for 5,000 hogs, 10,000 hogs or whatever. Um, and the neighbors have had no opportunity to comment on this or often unaware that this is underway, uh, even though it may take a year or two years to get all the appropriate permits. So I wanted you to explain a little bit about that. So while I'm curious, Katie, are you familiar with the, the ancient book, it's Sung Tzu, The Art of War. Oh, yeah, sure. Of course. I, yeah, I, I had to read that when I was young. <laughs> yeah. So, well, um, you know, that book is, is still really instructive today. And that book is used in military academies. It's used in business sure. schools to help train like military personnel and future corporate strategists. It's a quick read. I would encourage your audience to read it because mm -hmm. it helps to understand the stealth, what you call stealth sighting of CAFOs. I love that term. Um, and one of the things that Song Zhu talks about in his book is 
the sneak attack. And, right. and, and, and the quote is, attack him where he is unprepared, appear where you are not expected. Right. And that is exactly what happens. Most neighbors receive only 10 days notice that a factory farm is going into the immediate area. Later, the farmer, you know, like in our, you know, in our case, for example, you find out that the siting of that particular project has been in the works for perhaps months or even years. Mm -hmm. And the neighbors are always blindsided. It's the same story. And so it's this strategic game of whack-a-mole to surprise unsuspecting neighbors. And what happens is, like, you can't garner any opposition. You can't get your neighborhood gathered together. You you don't have time to organize. You might have other appointments. You might have work commitments. People can't make it to the public meetings. And so um, the other thing I found out, though, is that the siting of these projects usually doesn't make any sense. Like, why would you put a project next, next to sensitive karst topography, like they're doing in Wisconsin or trying to expand up in uh, near Devil's Lake, North Dakota. And mm-hmm. always, always, always when I ask the question, what's the Farm Bureau connection? Boom. <laughs> Bingo. Really? The common denominator in the siting of these projects is almost always Farm Bureau. Farm Bureau uses their network of corporate farmers to site these projects. Mm-hmm. Mm. I never think of the Farm Bureau as being a particularly uh, malign um, entity, but, uh, you know, evidently they have their own agenda, but you know, what I wanted to ask you about is like every CAFO hog band, you know, cog facility has to have some sort of manure management plan that has to be filed with the town. I mean, that's an EPA regulation and they all have to do it. And obviously some towns are more lax about that than others. But at this point, when you describe like around your family farm and you have 12 CAFOs or whatever it was, you said you added a three mile radius. I'm thinking to myself, what, who's, I mean, how can you can't have any drinking water? I mean, there's spills, there's leaks. Uh, you know, it's like, how has this, you know, how are they getting away with this uh, in terms of the town being able to consume potable water? I don't understand how this is not becoming a huge environmental issue that is forcing towns to take a much harder look at where these, uh, you know, where these CAFOs are sited. Uh, well, by way of, of by way of background, my parents uh, were involved in three separate lawsuits, uh, starting in 2014, against Dodge County officials and the local industry. And so, you know, when you're involved in litigation, you learn a lot about your opponent. And we learned a lot about manure management plans in that process. Sure. And manure management is a joke. Um, that these large operations are supposed to have a manure management plan. Yeah. Um, We discovered that land was double pledged. The exact same land that had been pledged for one CAFO was pledged for another CAFO. Um, There's no accountability. We have a citizens group called Dodge County Concerned Citizens. We audited the manure management plans that should have been on file in Dodge County. Yeah, Absolutely. And there should have been about 100 manure management plans on file with the county, with the feedlot officer, given the size of these operations. And we discovered that only 37 manure management plans were on file. The the other important part of this is to note that manure application is based on self-reporting, believe it or not. 
boy. Yeah. And so, and we witnessed, you know, some of these operators go out at two o'clock in the morning, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. No one knows where the where the manure is being applied. They don't know how much is being applied. They don't know if it's been applied twice to the same land. Right. Uh, manure is applied to frozen ground. I mean, all kinds of nonsense mm, that effective. is occurring. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No right. one checks. No one knows. There's there's no accountability. Okay. So there's no enforcement, No, very little in the way of regulation, no enforcement of whatever regulations exist. And that whoever is on these town councils or involved in these town planning uh, boards is uh, either turning a blind eye or getting greased. I mean, what other... You know what other conclusion can one come to? What you know, I don't understand what the what the um, they must be getting paid an awful lot of money to fail to uh, demand some sort of accountability in terms of these manure management plants. I mean, that's just literally criminal to poison everybody's well. I bet most of your people uh, out there have their own personal wells, which means that they're absorbing a lot of this into their own well water, and that's that is very troubling. Let, let's let's let's. Oh wait, you know what? We have to take a short break for a sponsor drop. Uh, Stay tuned, people. We'll be right back with Sonia Trom Ayers talking about the expansion of the hog industry in uh, Minnesota and what they do to um, make sure they get their way. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. In Wisconsin, cheese is our thing. Wisconsin is the only state in the country that requires a license to make cheese. From curds to cheddar, blue to brick, Wisconsin cheesemakers can do it all. We blend tradition with innovation to create an incredible variety of cheeses that you just can't get anywhere else. You've heard of a PhD, but have you heard of a PH cheese? Otherwise known as the Wisconsin Master Cheesemaker Program. This rigorous study of cheese is an elite accomplishment earned by only 80 talented cheesemakers in Wisconsin, and the program is only one of two in the world. Becoming a master cheesemaker takes 13 years and is basically like a doctorate in a specific variety of cheese with intense requirements to succeed. Our master cheesemaker program allows makers to perfect both the art and science of their craft in a tradition so rich you can taste it. Find your next favorite cheese and meet our makers at wisconsincheese.com. Um, so we were uh, discussing <laughs> the fact that there's no very little regulation, no enforcement of manure management. This is not completely surprising to me, but still, it's, it's always a little bit of a jaw dropper. But let's let's talk for a second about why people are so compliant with these corporations. This is the thing that that always blows my mind. So corporate animal agriculture presents itself and 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 essentially I would say brainwashes but uh you know instructs its practitioners, you know, the people who have these contract growers um you know so you're 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 engaged in the essential business of feeding the nation. We can't feed the country without you. The world will collapse, you know, we got to keep making sure that we have this steady stream of, of animal protein on the, everybody's plate and everybody's grocery store. Um, and yet, you know, I forget what the numbers are exactly of how much, you know, for example, hog uh, flesh we ship out of this country, but it is in the tens of millions of tons. So, you know, we aren't, <laughs> you know, we aren't feeding this country 
We are feeding other countries. And if these guys, you know, in your area are buying into this idea that without their hard work, there is going to be not enough food on the table for the American population, you know, there has to be some way of disabusing them of this because these companies are making mad, mad profit on, you know, these export sales. And I don't see that the growers are getting a whole big piece of that. So how how is it that these growers are unaware of the end uh, location of, of their of their of their hog meat? Uh, Katie, you're absolutely right. And, you know, the corporate storyline that these farmers are fed is that they're feeding the world. Well, right. they're not they're not feeding the world. They're no. they're feeding the corporate bottom line. Right. And and my understanding is that approximately 30 percent of the hogs that are produced here in the United States are shipped abroad. Oh, more we, than I mean, one in four hogs owned by Smithfield is is going is going out to China. So that's just one of these big companies. JBS yeah. is shipping tons of meat to South America. I mean, all over the world, actually. So, I mean, the Asian appetite for, for pig meat is, is, you know, legion. And no reason why they shouldn't. But except that, you know, we are owning the pollution. We are owning the environmental uh, impl- implications of this. And, uh, and we are not owning the food. That's right. We are not owning the corn. You know what I'm saying? We're like growing the corn. We're wasting our water. You know, we're doing all this stuff in the service of the meat industry and they're making absolutely obscene profit. uh, And it is not uh, to the benefit of the United States, in my opinion. Right. We are we are essentially exporting the meat and importing the pollution. Right. That's what we're doing. That's right. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we are squandering our very precious reserves of water, uh, which we will all find in the next you know, decade or two are going to become ever increasingly scarce and important. But I want to talk a little bit about because I, this is the thing that really blew my mind about our whole you know, pre-interview thing is the power and control dynamics because we don't have too much more time. So talk a little bit about, you know, when you, your family pushed back with those three lawsuits in the 90s um, and then other farmers around and the, and the activist groups that are starting to try to rein in these, uh, the corporate expansion, what, ex- describe what has happened to, you know, both your family and other families in the area when they have had the nerve to say, I don't want another CAFO, you know, a half a mile away from my house. So my parents initiated their first lawsuit actually in 2014, the second in 2015, and the third in 2017. So it's actually pretty recent. Oh, that's very recent. I was I yeah. was conflating it with the stuff that was going on in the 90s. Okay. Yep. No, going. we just we just have a long history with the entire storyline. <laughs> and so <laughs> <You do. laughs> I mean, we so we've been on the front lines, you know, fighting uh, factory farms for for years and years. And right. we have, as a result of, you know, our position, we have suffered considerable harassment and intimidation. We are well aware of the tactics that are used by the industry to silence opposition. And um, there's just so much that's happened over the years. I know we're not going to have time to discuss all of it this morning. But as a family law attorney, I will share with you that, you know, I am trained in power and control dynamics that are right. almost always present in divorce proceedings. So in a divorce context, one spouse is always trying to put the squeeze on the other spouse, for example, and trying to sure. take away their children or cutting them off financially. And so um, are you familiar with the power and control wheel or the domestic violence wheel? 
Uh, no, because fortunately, I've never experienced either of those things. So, yeah, I know I'm in a minority, but yeah, and I am divorced even, but yeah, we didn't do that. Okay. So, well, um, well, good. I mean, good and bad for you, right? So, but you know, the power, but what I take from that is that those same power and control dynamics that are present in unhealthy marriages are also present in unhealthy rural communities. And so some of the tactics that you know, have been employed against my family personally are things such as they use intimidation tactics. Um, They try to make the neighbors afraid. For example, they shot bullet holes in the stop sign just a few hours after my brother and I were in the field pulling out weeds. Uh, There's vandalism, constant dumping of garbage in our ditches, in our driveway. They sprayed Roundup, pure Roundup on the cornfield, which caused thousands and thousands of dollars to the, to the field. Yeah. Um, uh, but they missed the wrong field. They got the field across the road that doesn't belong to us. <laughs> they file false police reports with the sheriff's department, not to report some type of offense, but to try and put the heat on my family and put the heat on me personally. Um, they also use tactics such as emotional abuse. And frankly, some of the thing, tactics they, they did that I found the most insulting, they, ca- they called my elderly father, who was in his late 80s, you know, after midnight and and stated, have you changed yet? Unbelievable. Then, oh, yeah. And then another thing, this is frankly one of the most disgusting things that's happened. And it's, it's not just my family, but they weaponize manure and they spread it the weekend of my dad's uh, funeral visitation and funeral in October of 2019. Mm-hmm. A blooming, my hometown of Blooming Prairie, the funeral home is right almost on the edge of town. Right. And they, they spread manure just feet from the funeral home. And then, and also uh, not too far from the rural graveside where my, where my dad is buried. Mm. So, you know, other tactics, uh, they use coercive tactics. They use threats. Um, they use economic abuse, such as they try to interfere with the neighbor's employment. They want to find out where people are employed. If you voice a concern, they'll complain to your employer. Mm-hmm. They will, they won't, um, you know, they won't go in and buy, buy anything from your business. They try to impact the local businesses. And so, um, but what, you know, what we've discovered is that the same tactics that are used against my family have been used against dozens of frontline families. Mm-hmm. And so, but I have to tell you, given this significant amount of harassment and intimidation, we finally went to the press, not to grab headlines, but frankly, for our own safety. Mm-hmm. Well, when you've reported these incidents to the sheriff, uh, to your local sheriff, what is the response? I mean, what do they do? Anything? Or do they I just- have- I have begged the Dodge County Sheriff to, to conduct an investigation. And I, um, because I, you know, I shared with him, look, the tactics are the same. The geographic locations are different. Like someone is training these individuals. I offered to provide him with the names and contact information of these other individuals. Complete radio silence. Um, but we did have a breakthrough moment actually earlier this year. Um, in some of the garbage that was dumped in our ditches, we my brother discovered a flyer that announced an annual meeting of the Minnesota Pork Board and the Minnesota <laughs> Pork Producers Association right. and 
it included the name and address. And so we finally had a solid lead. So I gave that information to the sheriff, directly to the sheriff. And um, his response was, um, well, I actually think there may be an issue out there with your garbage hauler. You know, oh. the problem, we don't have a garbage hauler. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, so, then. You know, uh, you know, but where do we turn for assistance if we can't turn to the local law enforcement? So that's a, that's a good question. Well, I mean, you've obviously documented a lot of this. Uh, so you're able to, you know, literally show them photographs, film. You sent me some photographs of like dead animals in people's mailboxes and stuff that was pretty disgusting as well. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, you know, the failure of law enforcement. I mean, I think law enforcement does what, you know, people tell them to do, basically. Um, but you included a long entry from a local town Facebook page with a lot of participants expressing outrage that you would push back against this corporate model. And I was surprised to see the level of vitriol. So it's not just the corporation uh, that is, you know, uh, employing its goons to, you know, dump garbage or call your dad at midnight or whatever. But it's like people in your town are upset that you don't like having 10 KFOs around your house. Why do you think people find your activism so personally threatening? I think, first of all, I'm an easy target. You know, it's called shooting the messenger. And right. they... But why aren't know, they pissed off? I mean, excuse me. But why aren't they mad about the environmental impacts? Um, why aren't they worried about the local water quality? Why aren't they being suffocated by the fumes from the manure lagoons? I, you know, I, I really I don't understand that. I'm not I'm not grasping why the town is not saying I mean, other towns in Iowa are absolutely organizing and, and, you know, really making some noise now. I don't understand why your local citizenry is so complacent. Who is paying them? Well, <laughs> pe people are afraid, to be honest. And you, so know, you think believe, it's really that? I think mm -hmm. absolutely. I mean, I'm telling you, like no one is going to no one locally is going to step into my shoes. I don't live in my hometown. Right. I live in the Twin Cities Metro, but I'm frequently at our farm and yeah. local people are not going to speak out. I don't go to church with these folks. I don't I don't have children in the in the school system. I don't have to face them in the grocery store. Uh -huh. But believe it or not, I've actually opened up discussion with several contract growers and I truly believe that even these contract growers are afraid and one of my friends who's a contract grower and he was extremely active in Farm Bureau circles. I asked him, I said, are they afraid? And you know his response? He no. said, I know they're afraid. I know they're afraid. You don't want to get your contract pulled. You get right. your contract pulled. You got no place to go with those pigs. And you've got a debt to service. So we know, I mean, that's they do the same thing in the poultry industry. But I don't think it's quite, uh, you know, quite as sort of... Mm, you know, they scare the contract growers, but not the whole community. But, I, you know, I just want to I want to move on a little bit because one of the things we don't have a lot of time here. That's why um, corporate animal agriculture has been able to keep their pricing basically a secret. So uh, one contract grower doesn't know what another contract grower is making. I know that is true in the poultry industry, and I'm, I'm assuming that is true in the hog industry. 
But if growers were more aware of how that lack of transparency is affecting their own bottom lines, do you think they would be more inclined to push back against the industry? Would there be more organizing going on with these contract growers if they all knew, if there was true price discovery and they all knew who was making what, from where, how they were getting paid, you know, all of that stuff. Like that seems to me like a very good way to, um, you know, get people to both organize themselves, but also to push back against the industry and demand that kind of transparency. I'm, I'm curious why you think that has not already started happening in your area. Well, again, you know, I guess some income, any income is better than no income, especially if you're trying to preserve the family farm, you know, this family legacy. And, um, you know, these contracts are both procedurally and in many instances, they're both procedurally and substantively unfair. So in terms of procedural fairness, which is something, you know, as an attorney, you look at with a contract, I mean, was this person represented by legal counsel? Did they have time to negotiate it? Mm-hmm. These farmers right. are just presented a contract in many instances and told, here, sign. And by the way, don't show it to anyone and don't show it to a lawyer. So right. there's no procedural fairness, substantive I fairness. I mean, they're they're skewed toward um, toward the toward the big meat processors. They're the sure. ones that are the big winners in this. Oh, Not yeah, the contract growers. These contract growers are basically indentured servitude. You know, it's Absolutely. indentured servitude, right? Oh, no doubt about that. No doubt about that. But you know what's also interesting to me, because we're going to have to wrap this up here, um, is that people in the corporate animal agricultural community, like you're, these guys, these local guys who are contract growing for Hormel, Tyson, whatever, you know, they are paying the same high prices at the supermarket that all the rest of us are seeing post-COVID, right? Or, you know, during this COVID period. I mean, like the price of meat has skyrocketed, especially in the beef section in sector, but but even, uh, you know, pork and, and poultry have gotten much more expensive than they were even a year ago. I mean, these guys are still, they're paying, you know, they're paying what everybody else is paying at the supermarket and they're not seeing an increase in their price per pound at the gate. So uh, like, how come they can't, uh, you know, can't see that they need to, you know, organize themselves. I mean, this is the thing, like I'm an organizer, you know what I mean? Like I like to see organizations of people doing stuff for each other and together to push back against injustice, like, you know, the old time union thing, right? So this is what I don't understand about these people is that they, they pay in the high prices at the supermarket, but they're not getting the high price at the gate. And that's, that to me is like, that would be the first thing that would make me think, hey, wait a minute, you know, I'm getting screwed here. And that that is amazing. So let's quickly just, what do you think should happen? Like how would it, would that kind of thing, like price discovery, uh, would that organize people and get them to push back? Uh, does the federal government need to get involved in terms of demanding transparency in pricing, uh, demanding that um, that corporations take resp- responsibility for manure management, for example. You know, they, they shove that all off onto the farmer. And then when something goes wrong, the farmer is the one who pays the price, right? I mean, you're, you're not seeing Hormel and Tyson being the ones who are penalized for uh, damaging water quality locally. And this is more of an issue in North Carolina where there's actually starting to be some success in these, in these suits. But um, what, what, do you, what would you do on a local level, say, 
to uh, try to get people to recognize how they are being exploited. So, well, on a local level, I would say that, you know, we need to move toward more of a regional and a local food system mm-hmm. and, and adopt financing objectives. I mean, there's big money behind big ag, but we need to get big money behind the, like a local and regional food system. And we need to support Main Street, you know, not not Wall Street. I would love to see a meat market, you know, on every Main Street in rural America. Uh, there is yeah. a group called Family Farm Action Alliance, and they are actually working toward, you know, moving toward more of this model of local and regional food systems. Right. And another thing I would suggest is we need a top-down approach, like the federal government and the Department of Justice is now working on litigation to break up the monopolistic control in the meatpacking industry. You know, it's from a public, from a national security perspective, we can't afford to have our food supply in the hands of just a few multinational corporations. And then, Absolutely. and then another item I would suggest is we also need a bottom-up approach. And so through congressional mandate, uh, we need to set up a system so that we can free these contract growers from the heavy burden associated with these long-term one-sided contracts and to free these farmers and get them out of these contracts. The other problem yeah. that's going to be left, of course, for these contract growers is they're going to be sitting with an ugly factory farm with a manure pit. And so there's all this environmental cleanup that needs to occur also. Right. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that that's a very daunting prospect for any state or town to address. I mean, Iowa, North Carolina, all of these big hog producing states. I mean, I, I refer to North Carolina as the toxic waste dump of the United States. I mean, besides the, the problems that they have with their hogs and chickens, uh, you know, they've also got the, you know, coal ash problem from Duke Energy. They've got all of the toxic stuff from uh, from the Chamorris plant or Camorras, however you say that, uh, all of the fallout from that Dow DuPont making those Teflon products and all that stuff in, in uh, North Carolina for so many years. I mean, it's just, it's it's a miracle that their people are not dying like flies of, you know, um, uh, toxic related disease. I mean, and I'm sure, and that's going to come down the pike for your folks in Minnesota, just as it is in, in Iowa, where they have tremendous water quality issues. It's just a matter of time before that uh, starts really having an impact on your local population as well. So, well, you know, I think you should be writing to Tom Vilsack. <laughs> Maybe we can just send him a recording right of this production. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tom Vilsack, such a friend to the farmer in this country, isn't he? Uh, anyway, um, listen, that's all we have time for today. But thank you so, so much for this, Sonia. Really interesting. Keep me posted. I want to hear what happens. Stay in touch. Yeah, thanks, Katie. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, you know, we'll talk again in another few months and see where things are going. But uh, I appreciate your time today. And thanks to my sponsor, as always. And thank you, folks, for tuning in. Really a pleasure, as always, to leave you with these interesting stories of the heartland. (laughs) Until next week. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.